So now that some measure of quiet has returned to Israel and Gaza following the ceasefire last week, we're faced with the question of what comes next? Where do we go from here? History suggests the ceasefire won't last long. Hamas isn't going away. Neither are the tensions that contribute to the conflict. Eventually, things will boil over again, and there'll be another round of fighting. The question of what to do about Hamas is a difficult one, because they are an entrenched terrorist group, a terrorist mini-state, really, that nevertheless has been afforded a great deal of legitimacy. There's no international will to get rid of this violently evil regime, and so ultimately Israel, as I talked about last time, is actually pretty limited in what it can do. But what about Israel's side of the equation? Lots of people trace the root of this conflict to Israel's occupation, and specifically its settlements in the West Bank. There are lots of arguments against it. The settlements are a land grab. The occupation required to keep them is a terrible injustice against the Palestinian people, and degrading to Israel's moral, political, and Jewish character. The more land Israel takes, the less likely you can later build a viable Palestinian state on what's left. And indeed, that's what Israel wants, to keep all this territory. This further entrenches the conflict. It provides an excuse for Palestinian terrorism, which gets labeled as legitimate resistance. The entire enterprise is just morally bankrupt. And yet, this is not a problem easily solved by Israel simply ending the settlements or the occupation. Israeli politics, economics, and security mitigate against it. Palestinian leaders have made clear even before the occupation began that their goal is the complete destruction of Israel. The settlements are just one piece. The Palestinians have rejected nearly every effort by Israel to negotiate over the land. So what is Israel supposed to do? It's an intractable challenge, but one so vital to Israel's future that it cannot be ignored. As I always say, but this time with an extra dose of emphasis, we cannot cover the history of the settlements or all the arguments and counter-arguments in just this one episode. My plan here isn't to go over how terrible the occupation is. You can find that in a thousand different articles. But that doesn't mean I'm excusing the project. I pretty well fall into the category of someone deeply skeptical about the occupation and opposed to its indefinite existence as calamitous for both Israel as a Jewish democracy and for the Palestinian people. So today, some historical background on the occupation and the settlements, and a few thoughts on why it is so hard to move forward on this. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. <laughs> I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. In 1967, shortly after the Six-Day War, a group of Israelis asked the government to allow them to build a settlement inside the West Bank, not too far from Jerusalem. What had previously been Jordanian territory was now in the hands of Israel. That summer, 1967, five Arab countries instigated a war with Israel in an attempt to destroy it completely. Instead, within a week, Israel had won and in the process captured territory three times its own size. The Golan Heights from Syria, the Sinai Peninsula and the Gaza Strip from Egypt, and the West Bank and the eastern half of Jerusalem from Jordan. Thus began the occupation. Starting in 1967, all these territories came under Israeli military control, including, of course, the people living there, who were mostly Palestinian. 
Today, the only remaining territories under occupation are the West Bank and East Jerusalem, which had originally been occupied by Jordan. Before that, they were occupied by the British, and before that, the Ottoman Empire for 400 years. Which isn't an argument for Israel continuing to occupy the West Bank, just to point out that this land has never been under Palestinian sovereignty before. Israel did not invade a Palestinian state in 1967. But in any case, Israel found itself in control of this huge amount of territory, and the question was what to do with it, specifically the West Bank. Within a month of the war, the Minister of Labor, a politician named Gigal Alon, put forth a plan with two options. In the first option, Israel would keep the strategic land along the border with Jordan to defend itself against possible future attacks. The rest of the territory, where most of the Palestinians lived, would be returned to Jordan. Alternatively, the land would instead be given to the Palestinians to form their own independent state. A lot of people supported the Palestinian option, but the government ultimately didn't officially adopt it. The Palestinian leaders themselves were also not enthusiastic. So instead, Israel pushed the Jordanian option, in which most of the Palestinians would be back under Jordanian control. But the king of Jordan rejected that idea. He wanted all of the territory back, not just some of it. So even though Israel never formally adopted this plan, for the next 10 years or so, they acted more or less as if they had. So when a group of Orthodox Jewish activists approached the left-wing government to request permission to build a settlement in the West Bank, it was granted. The settlement they built south of Jerusalem was called Kfar Etzion, and it was both new and also not so new. It had originally been founded by Yemenite Jews back in the 1920s, on land the Jews purchased for a small agricultural community. But in 1929, Arabs rioted against Jews all over Palestine, and the community was destroyed. It was rebuilt in the 1930s, but again destroyed in the Arab riots of 1936. Kfar Etzion was rebuilt again in the 1940s, but during Israel's War of Independence in 1948-49, the kibbutz was attacked by Arab forces. This culminated, a day before Israel declared independence, in a wholesale massacre of the kibbutz's inhabitants. Out of a couple hundred Jews trapped there during the siege, only four survived. The residents who had managed to flee ahead of time were taken prisoner and held for over a year. The territory was seized by Jordan. So when Israel took the West Bank in 1967, several of the original residents and their families insisted on re-establishing Kfar Etzion. Israel's government was reluctant, since it wasn't yet approving civilian settlements in the West Bank, but Kfar Etzion went ahead anyway. It became Israel's very first West Bank settlement. The point of this is that there's no easy way to classify all the Israeli settlements. Some, like Kfar Etzion, seem to me to fall in an ethical gray zone. It wasn't built on stolen Palestinian land. But over the decades, settlements around it sometimes were. It's extremely messy. When you look at a color-coded map of the West Bank, it looks like a Jackson Pollock painting, with colors and stripes and shapes going every which way. You can have an Israeli settlement of 900 people, in which 300 of them live on what was a former Jordanian military base. 
and then down the street another 300 live on land that previously belonged to nobody, or even to Jewish residents whom Jordan ethnically cleansed after the War of Independence. And then further down the street another 300 people living on land that indeed had been seized from private Palestinian owners. And the settlement itself might be in an area Israel considers crucial for its defense, like on top of a hill, or any kind of buffer zone between Israel proper and a big Palestinian town. And don't even get me started on the law. You can have an Israeli court rule that the settlement is illegal under Israeli law and that the Jews must leave. And then another court rules that the same settlement is actually legal and the Jews don't have to go anywhere. And until the Supreme Court makes a final ruling, nothing happens. And even if the Supreme Court rules that those 300 residents on Palestinian private land have to leave, they usually don't. And even if they did, Israel isn't going to turn over a chunk of land in the middle of a Jewish town to the Palestinians. And then there's international law. The Geneva Convention says you can't capture territory and then settle your own civilians there, effectively taking it over. Which is exactly what Israel's settlements do. But, Israel says, hey wait a minute, we won a war that we didn't start, and now we need this territory for defense. And the law does allow for that in some situations. And it can also require that when the territory is returned, it come with security guarantees from the other side. So the blanket statement that all Israeli settlements are illegal is, well, murky. But then, of course, what should happen to the population already living there, the Palestinians? The occupation came before the settlements. They are two different things. One is, was and is the holding of territory Israel captured in 1967, and the other is building on that land. Nowadays, however, the two feed off each other. Israel needs its military in the West Bank not just to protect Israel itself, but to protect Israeli citizens living in these settlements created after 1967. The presence of these settlements, in turn, means that, well, we need to keep the army around to protect us. It's a system of codependency in which each justifies the other and traps the Palestinians in an impossible situation. So to say it's all a mess is to dramatically understate the problem. So why does Israel build these settlements? Why go through all this trouble? There are five reasons why Israel builds settlements. The first is religion. Religious Jews believe that God promised this land in its entirety to the Jewish people. It's an essential part of the covenant and described numerous times in the Hebrew Bible that in exchange for the Jewish people obeying God's commandments, God will bless them, which includes ownership of this land. It's a religious imperative then for Jews to settle everywhere the ancient Jewish homeland existed. The second reason is history. Even if you don't buy into the divine element, there's no question that the Jews have an indelible and indigenous connection to this land going back 3,000 years, which you would know if you're listening to my current season on ancient history, just saying. What is today the West Bank is the core of the ancient Jewish homeland. It's where the Israelite people emerged as a distinct nation, where Judaism was formed, where their capital Jerusalem was and is located, where Jews directed their prayers for millennia. Most of Judaism's holiest sites are located in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. 
the old city with the western wall is considered part of East Jerusalem. If you believe that Jews have the right to live in their indigenous homeland, well, then the West Bank is very much it. So religion and history combine for our third reason, politics. Religious Jews tend to be right-wing, and so the right-wing tends to support building settlements. Generally speaking, the more right-wing you are, the more you support settlements, the more you support Israel taking over the land, the more you don't support the creation of a Palestinian state. And for a little more than a decade now, the Israeli government, led by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, has been extremely right-wing indeed. Netanyahu all but gave up on the idea of creating a Palestinian state, because in order to keep his job, he's had to appeal to an ever more extreme right-wing base that agitates for more settlements. In other words, while most Israelis don't support the continued building of settlements, politicians require the votes of the right-wingers who do, ensuring that they get their way. Which brings us to the fourth and probably most underappreciated reason. Economics. It is much cheaper to live in the West Bank than in most other places in Israel. Housing costs are much lower, and the government, thanks again to right-wing support for settlements, ensures tons of funding for services, infrastructure, schools, security, and other essential programs. So, religiously and ideologically minded Jews looking for a cheap place to live that is deeply connected to Jewish history found the West Bank to be just the lifestyle for them, and for the most part, they were encouraged and supported by the Israeli government. There is a fifth reason, not necessarily connected to the other four, and that is security. Most of Israel's early settlements were built along the border with Jordan to form a kind of early warning system that would alert Israel to an impending invasion and hopefully slow it down. And this was the thinking behind Yigal Alon's plan to keep some territory but give up the rest. Still, not all Israelis were in favor of either building the settlements or of holding on to the land. It became the single most important issue defining Israeli politics. Where you stood on the occupation defined where you stood on the right or left. The right considered the settlements essential for Israel's future, for its security, for its Jewish character, for the fulfillment of the Zionist goal of returning to the ancient Jewish homeland. The left felt differently about Israel's future. The occupation would be too great a burden on Israel's military and the struggle to control millions of Palestinians would harm Israel's democracy and degrade its soul. Even Israel's first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, who was by then retired, he argued that Israel should keep the Golan Heights and East Jerusalem, but give everything else away. And even some prominent religious Jews argued for getting out of the newly captured territories, lest Israel be forced to absorb all those Palestinians and thus end the Jewish nature of the state. It was a clash of ideologies. Israelis fundamentally disagreed about how to ensure the future of Israel as a Jewish democracy. It's a debate that still resonates today and helps explain the frustrating entrenchment of the occupation and the settlements. Whenever I talk to Israelis about this, I always hear the same paradox. For the sake of Israel's future as a Jewish democracy, the occupation has to end. And for the sake of Israel's security, the occupation has to stay. If you can't hold those two same thoughts in your head at the exact same time, then you have no way to fully appreciate how difficult this situation is.
So what are the big overarching problems with the settlements? The first is that they perpetuate the occupation, and the second is that grabbing up all the land forecloses the possibility of creating a viable Palestinian state on what's left. Both of those sustain and inflame the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The need to protect these pockets of Jewish settlements in the midst of a larger Palestinian population requires a huge and heavy-handed military occupation. Palestinians have their every move monitored and controlled through a complex web of checkpoints, roadblocks, military bases, security walls, and aggressive military policing. A system of permits is required for much movement and can be denied arbitrarily and without warning. This makes it incredibly burdensome, and sometimes outright impossible, to visit family, get to work, seek adequate medical care and education, and much else. Of course, there is a reason for such intense security. The Israeli journalist Matty Friedman recently wrote about a frequent occurrence in the West Bank. Palestinian terrorists had murdered several Israelis driving along a road in between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, so the army closed the road to Palestinians, only allowing through cars with Israeli license plates, meaning Israeli citizens, which includes both Jews and Arab citizens of Israel. The shootings stopped. Friedman wrote that an American journalist asked if it was now appropriate to refer to the road as segregated. It was a fundamental misunderstanding of the situation as based on race, rather than the more obvious concerns around life and death. This is not a racial conflict. It's a national one. It's a struggle between two people who both lay claim to the same small patch of land. The reality is that for Israelis to live safely in the West Bank, they need to be surrounded by a military regime the occupation that can keep the Palestinians away. All of which begs the extremely obvious question, well, why not just leave then? Why keep the settlements and the occupation when they cause so much pain to both Palestinians and Israelis, to say nothing of Israel's moral stature, its status in the world, and the way the settlements feed and seem to justify Palestinian terrorism against Israel? And the answers are complicated. One is security. Israel worries that relinquishing the occupation, dismantling the settlements, and pulling back its borders to what had existed before 1967 would pose a huge threat. We've been through this before, they say. Israel occupied Gaza from 1967 to 2005, with some 8,000 Jews in settlements heavily defended by the Israeli army. It was a right-wing government under Prime Minister Ariel Sharon that unilaterally ended the occupation and forced all the Jewish settlers to leave Gaza. Instead of building a kind of pre-state in Gaza, Hamas took over and turned it into a platform to attack Israel. It's likely that the same thing would happen right now if Israel suddenly left the West Bank, and you really can't ask Israel to repeat that experience. As long as Israelis worry that the Palestinians would turn the West Bank into a terrorist base, they see the occupation as essential. Another reason is diplomatic. Israel doesn't feel it has a trustworthy partner on the Palestinian side. The Palestinian government is too weak and corrupt to guarantee the terms of any deal. So Israel will be giving up something huge in exchange for possibly not much of anything. Israel points out that the Palestinians have a long history of rejecting any compromise with Israel. Despite numerous efforts by Israel to make a peace deal, to compromise on land and other issues, the Palestinians not only reject all the proposals, but often walk away from the table completely. And while Israel doesn't need the Palestinians' permission to end the occupation, of course, they could just do it unilaterally. Well, see the previous point about security. 
Without any kind of system in place to guarantee security, Israel would just be repeating the Gaza fiasco. There are other reasons, perhaps less defensible, for the occupation and the settlements. There's just straight-up politics. Right-wing governments tend to support settlements, and Israel's government over the last decade-plus has been extremely right-wing in that regard. Beyond just the support for settlements, though, has been the unwillingness to consider the creation of a future Palestinian state. Israel, under its right-wing government, gives every sign of wanting to keep as much land as possible in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, for the ultra-right wing, that means keeping all of it. This means preserving the harsh regime of the occupation. Israel over the past decade has shown almost no interest in laying the necessary groundwork for a future Palestinian state, nor even paying more than lip service to the peace process. And finally, there's just the sheer entrenchment of the occupation. When Israel forcibly removed Jewish settlers from Gaza in 2005, there were about 8,000 of them. Today, in the West Bank, there are some 475,000 Jews, and another 200,000 live in East Jerusalem. Most of the Jews live in concentrated areas or large cities, and it's unlikely that Israel would ever move those people out. Which isn't a deal-breaker, necessarily. The idea is that Israel will keep those areas, but compensate the Palestinians with equivalent land elsewhere. But Jerusalem is surrounded by Jewish settlements, effectively cutting the Palestinians there off from the larger West Bank, and Israel has been pretty clear that it will never give up those East Jerusalem neighborhoods. So on the one hand, you've got this very real security imperative. If Israel simply ends the occupation on its own, without any sort of peace agreement with the Palestinians, it's opening itself up to another terrorist enclave in the West Bank. Very dangerous. But if Israel does nothing to end the occupation, and insists on keeping the West Bank for itself indefinitely or permanently, it raises another fundamental problem for its future as a Jewish democracy. If Israel is going to keep the West Bank, then in order to remain a democracy, it must extend equal and civil rights to the millions of Palestinians living there. But in such a scenario, Jews will become the minority in Israel. The country will no longer be the Jewish state, and it's likely that Israel itself would end to become yet another Arab country. As for what will happen to the Jews in that scenario, well, no one really knows. So this is the source of this great paradox in Israel. The occupation is right now necessary for Israel's security, but it's also the instrument of Israel's demise as a Jewish democracy. Israel can't have both, but right now at least... It can't not have both. Okay, well, there is so much I didn't cover. So many angles, a lot of arguments, a lot of counter-arguments. The reality is that there is much that Israel could do right now to ease the burden of the occupation without getting rid of it. Less checkpoints and roadblocks, more freedom of movement, dismantle some of the smaller settlements and stop building new additions in the larger ones. Compensate the Palestinians for stolen land. All those things could be done without compromising Israel's security needs too much. 
even many Israeli military officials argue in favor of lessening the occupation's burden. But as I've said before, don't make the mistake of thinking that the occupation is the root cause of this conflict. The Arabs have been violently opposed to the Jewish presence in the Middle East since long before 1967. No matter how many times Israel has offered to trade land for peace, the Palestinians have said no. Hamas, Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad, Iran, and Palestinian leaders of all stripes have made clear that their fight will continue until Israel is destroyed, occupation or not. We should not minimize the enormous benefits for everyone that would come from ending the occupation, not the least of which to ordinary Palestinians who surely deserve a much better and more just future. But neither can we look away from the huge risks that Israel would be taking. Regardless of how we feel about the morality and efficacy of the settlements, we also need to understand how religion, history, politics, economics, and security all collide to bring us this immensely complicated puzzle. As always, my website is jewadono.com, and my email is jewadonopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'll be back soon. Lehitraot. See you later.